episode of The Morning Rage. I'm your host, Jen Prentice. And I'm your co-host, Lauren O'Keefe. This is not your mom's morning show. It's a space where we pop off about all things culture, society, and politics in order to help you unpack your beliefs, feel more confident in sharing your voice, and today, talk about the power of friendships to disrupt racism. We're so excited about today's episode because we have our first guest, our first interview, Jen, with your sister-in-law, Tisha Hadra. Yes, Tisha co-authored a book called Black and White, Disrupting Racism, One Friendship at a Time, and she's going to chat with us about friendship and the power it has to break down racial barriers and help us move towards racial reconciliation. As you all know, it's February and this month is Black History Month. We felt it was really important that we spend time having conversations around race and also relationships. It's also Valentine's Day this month, and I think the work it takes to create authentic relationships is really important to be intentional about, both platonic friendships, dating relationships, and of course marriage. We're so excited to have some guests on this month to help us navigate these conversations, and we're going to be encouraging you to join us in reading not only Tisha's book, but a book by Jamar Tisby called How to Fight Racism, Courageous Christianity and the Journey Toward Racial Justice, which uh, we will be discussing a bit more at the end of the episode. Yeah, I'm really excited about all of this. Um, relationships do take work, Laura. Oh, man, you're telling me. Especially during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> it's really thrown this whole concept of relationships on its head, huh? Woo! Just in the boundaries. <laughs> of parent-child, spouse, significant other, friendships. Speaking of friendships, though, I actually read an article in The Atlantic this week on the death of casual friendships. Mm -hmm. Like, you know those people that we talk to at the coffee maker at work, or the people that you see at the bar when you're watching the game, or even for me, the moms at my kids' school, who I wouldn't normally hang out with outside of school, or you wouldn't normally hang out with outside of the bar or work, but who you do enjoy having a conversation with from time to time. Can we uh, pop off about that for a moment? Yeah, I think that's something that we kind of knew was happening, but at the same time, I don't think we understand the effects of it exactly. And I think there's obviously good and bad, just like anything <laughs> to any of this, right, Jen? Yeah, let's talk about what I see as the good to the death yes. of casual friendships. I'm gonna give a real pumpkin spicy take mm, here. Bring it on. Mm. COVID has really helped me hone in on the people who are truly important to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to feel like I need to get together with everyone yeah. just because I see them somewhat regularly. Yeah, it could be like a lot of pressure to maintain friendships with folks that maybe are just surface level friendships. They're more acquaintances and you see them out and then you you do that thing where you're like, we should get coffee sometimes. And maybe you do, maybe you don't, but there's always a lot of pressure and guilt around this that we have avoided almost fully during COVID and have to spend almost all of our energy invested in those friendships that we intentionally want to build and grow and keep. I feel really good about the intentionality of all of my friendships right now. So for me, COVID has just been kind of a sigh of relief. It's taken that pressure off of my you know, people-pleasing tendencies, mm -hmm. my need to make sure everyone's okay, my two on the Enneagram, or maybe it's my three who wants to be perceived as a good friend to everyone. Oh, that's real for yeah, sure. That is definitely real. But that's been a definite positive thing for me. On the other hand, I know you read that article and looked at some of the, the negative things about not having these more casual interactions. Yes, I think in relation to what we're talking about with race this month as well, and how you build friendships with people from other cultures and other experiences, this definitely feels like it's widening the gap between us and the people like us and other groups of people. It's almost like because we don't have those touch points throughout the day of someone at the coffee shop, my barista, versus, you know, um, somebody at 
the dinner I go to that serves me food versus, you know, someone that I get to interact with at my job that I enjoy those, you know, little conversations. They could be small, they could be really meaningful at times. And I think because we're not having those with a lot of different people, it has to be affecting almost our humanity in a way because we're getting really used to our little bubble of people that we keep close, that are most like us, that are sometimes the easiest and most obvious people for us to engage with. I just think that gap's growing. And there was a quote in this article that I found maybe slightly jarring and also very true. It is from a psychologist and they say, there's a lot of research showing that when you talk only to people who are like you, it actually makes your opinions shift even further away from other groups. That's how cults work. That's how terrorist groups work. And wow, that's a really scary feeling. So it does feel like it could be slightly damaging to our, maybe our humanity, that we aren't having these little casual touch points in our lives with people that no, maybe we wouldn't hang out with all the time, but we do get a sense of connection with them. And I think that makes us a little more aware of what's going on in the world, a little more connected. Yeah, when you have these casual interactions with people that you don't know as well, sometimes they are more likely to say something that they maybe even don't realize you don't agree with, Mm -hmm. that hopefully, in the best case scenario, would make you think or would challenge the Mm -hmm. way that you view the world in some way. On the other hand, whenever you're with your well-curated group of friends, you kind of know where everyone stands on things, and so you don't bring up certain things or you do talk about certain things, and like you said, that can put us in these real echo chambers. Yes, and it's adding to our comfort levels. Like we are all so comfortable now because obviously no one's loving being trapped at home, but we are very lucky that we can be comfortable at home and comfortable in these relationships because most of them are very agreeable. And that's why we've kept these people around maybe in our lives. And I think that might be the tip of the scale on the negative side to losing, what was it, the death of casual friendships. Yeah, we're all going to go back out into the world and be like, what? I know. Have you seen those memes of like babies who were born during the pandemic? So they get to be like six or eight months old and they've never gone out anywhere. And all of a sudden their parents take them to like Target or something. (laughs) And they're like, we'll link to that as well. Anyways, we are super, super excited to have Tisha, like we said, with us today talking about friendships, and we're going to just turn it over to her. So here is our interview with my sister-in-law and the co-author of Black and White, Disrupting Racism, One Friendship at a Time, Tisha Hadra. Hey, everyone. We are so excited to be here today with Tisha Hadra, who also happens to be my amazing sister-in-law. She is our very first interviewee, our very first podcast interview. And Lauren and I have both read her book, Black and White, Disrupting Racism, One Friendship at a Time. I love her personally. I love her book. I know Lauren really loved her book. Tisha, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited um, to be here. I'm so excited to be with you. And I'm very excited to be the very first interviewee. Is that a word? Yes. I don't know. I would say guest, right? We haven't had any right? guests. You're our first guest. Well, first guest. You're yeah. for, your first guest. I'm very excited to be your first guest. <laughs> and um, and hi, Jen. <laughs> I know you guys can't see this, but we're doing this over Zoom. So Tisha and my brother Fred used to live here in California. So I got to see them a little bit more frequently. And now you guys are in New Orleans. So do you want to tell us a little bit about you and what you're doing and where you are? Yeah, I would love to. So, um, well, so to even back up a little bit, I uh, grew up in Florida, grew up in Fort Lauderdale. So actually not very far from where we live now in New Orleans. My parents uh, immigrated here from Jamaica. And I spent my first career as a lawyer and then made a big transition to ministry in about 2013 when I went to work for a big church down in Atlanta. And that's where I met and married 
your brother, Jen, not like Jen's not the brother, but Jen's brother, you get what I'm saying? <laughs> so <laughs> where I met Mary Jen's brother, uh, while, uh, we were down there in Atlanta and then we were in California as Jen was just saying for seminary. And then in June, we left California and came here to New Orleans where I now serve as a chaplain at a hospital, which has been really amazing and tragic and beautiful and, and messy and all the things, but, but I love a little, uh, mess. So I'm here for it. As if you weren't busy enough going to school at Fuller Theological Seminary working, you also worked at Fuller, right? Correct. You found some time in there to write this book. That's true. (laughs) What was your experience? Let's actually, before we talk more about the book, what has your experience been just in general? Like you said, you went to law school, then you transitioned into ministry in Atlanta, and then you went to seminary. Now you're in New Orleans working as a chaplain. Talk about just your career experience, your personal and professional sort of journey as a woman in predominantly male spaces, but also as a black woman in, you know, a lot of times predominantly white male Mm -hmm. spaces. What has your experience been in all of these different career paths? Yeah. You know, growing up in Fort Lauderdale, it it was, it was really such a blessing because I grew up in a very diverse part of the country. If anyone has ever been to that part of the state, it's not Southern at all. It's more Caribbean than New York and California, like mashed together. Um, And so I grew up around people of all different races and ethnicities. And so that was a really wonderful and I'm part of my experience and I'm super grateful for that. And yet, even though I grew up in the midst of that kind of diversity, the way that you described it, Jen, about sort of still being in those predominantly white male spaces was still a part of my experience. I didn't grow up in any kind of a, I don't know, a racial utopia or anything like that. I was always quite aware of my blackness. I was always quite aware of my own black skin and the ways that that would impact how others would see me and maybe even, um, you know, treat me. I, I remember, you know, my mom having conversations with me about how to behave if and when I was pulled over and how if I'm in a store, I shouldn't open my bag because the people will think I'm stealing. And so those types of things, I I just remember that uh, growing up and being in my law firm at the time, really all the law firms I worked in were predominantly white and male. And so in those spaces, you're just always conscious of having to be not just good and not just like better, but really stellar. That was something that my, my, my mom, my whole family, I think really taught us for better or for worse was that mediocrity is not an option as a person of color in professional spaces. And so that was just always something that I was really conscious of, but I'm also grateful for the ways that my mom in particular was intentional about instilling in us a certain sense of pride. Uh, When you think about as women, just all women, we have all these pressures from all the messaging about our appearance and who we are. And as a black woman, as a black girl, we have all of that. And layered on top of that are the standards of beauty that are predominantly white and European. And so my mom was so particular and intentional about teaching us that our um, kinky and curly hair was beautiful, that our dark skin was beautiful, that our broad noses were beautiful. And so even as there were these challenges that I came up with, there was this pride and this beauty that I saw my mom and my family really being intentional about cultivating in us when we were growing up. And I'm I am forever grateful for that. I would like to give a shout out to Jacinth and also uh, Grandma Ruth. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That would be Tisha's awesome mom and grandma who have had the privilege of meeting. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Now we have to teach my grandma how to listen to podcasts. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I would love nothing more. I would love to have your grandma on the podcast. Listen, you're, you're not, your listeners aren't ready for my grandma because <laughs> you can, when you turn 96, you can definitely say whatever you want. I think it's in the rule book somewhere. Looking and forward to that someday. <laughs> Listen, 
Oh, okay. So yes, shout out to your mom and grandma Ruth and your sister, Alicia. Yes. I remember you and I having a conversation before you started seminary and you were saying to me, I said, how can we be praying for you? And you did say just that, like, I would be able to be fully myself in my seminary classes and that I wouldn't be worried about coming off as, you know, there's always this the stereotype, the wrong stereotype of mm-hmm. being a quote unquote angry black woman or something like mm-hmm. that, just because you're simply just stating your opinion or standing up for what you believe. Absolutely. There's just always this pressure um, to sort of be a certain way so that you will not be perceived in a particular way. And I think as I've gotten older, I've been able to let go of a lot of that, but it always is in the back of your mind. I think wanting to be seen and accepted for all of who you are and all of your experiences and the fullness of how you are and how you came to be that and all of your story. And um, so I think I've been able to grow into that more, but it is always something when you go into new spaces that, um, that I am conscious of. And I think that's something that we as white women need to recognize that yes, we can be self-conscious and everyone's self-conscious to a certain extent, whenever you're going into a new space. But like you said, there's that extra added layer, like your mom taught you, for women of color in particular, that you have to be adhered to this certain extra standard of excellence that you just simply should not have to adhere to. Right. Right. Yeah. In all of these amazing adventures you've had from law school to uh, seminary and also writing a book, did you always know you wanted to write a book? Was this something you had thought of in the past or what was the thing that kind of pushed you into really going for? And is this the subject matter and the way you wanted to always present a book? Well, (laughs) to answer your first question about, did you always want to write a book, Lauren? The answer is no. (laughs) Um, If you had said to me, you know, X number of years ago, uh, uh, Tisha, P.S. And by the way, you're going to write a book and it's going to be published by, you know, a real publisher that publishes books. And then you're going to be on podcasts and speaking at things and all this. I would have said, "Um, you're insane and you're out of your mind. I never in a million years had on my list to write a book. When my friend, John Hambrick, who is my co-author with whom I had been working for a number of years, um, Um, And we had built this this friendship with one another. He he is an older uh, white man. And when he came to me and with this book idea, I said, oh, let me pray about that. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, but I I really um, talked to friends, talked to my husband prayed and really sensed a calling actually that that this was a story that we should tell that that we should tell this story of our friendship and the ways that it changed us the ways that it shaped us and the ways that it really began to drive our actions in a new and different way and so i definitely did not think i would ever write a book but but i'm grateful for the experience of, of having done it. And it was a, a great joy to write it for sure. Yeah, it was beautiful to see your friendship coming through in the book. I just really love that. I always wanted like an older brother. So like, I love, I just love like dynamics and the way two people like make each other better. And I just think it's really sweet and powerful to see that in the friendship that you guys represent in the book. I'm so grateful that that comes through. That's definitely one of the, um, the goals that we had in writing it was to allow both of our voices to be heard uh, in the book, you know, independently and, and strongly, and yet very much being in conversation with each other. So that really warms my heart to hear that that came through as you, as you read. And people probably don't know, but John married you and Fred too. That's true. That is true. We're, we're, we are like real friends, not yeah. just fake friends that constructed a friendship in order to write a book. So tell everyone a little bit about the book. What is it about? Why did you and John want to write this? So to answer the question of why we wanted to write it, issues of race and racism and race relations are something that has plagued this nation since its beginning. And the church has 
a bit of a mixed record, right? To say it kindly and most diplomatically. That's um, very generous of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in its dealings, in her dealings with issues of, of racism and, and, and racial justice. And so we really felt like we could be helpful in that conversation. We really felt like we could say something that would be both informative, but that would be um, catalyzing. And that was why we wrote the book, both to um, edify, but also to move people to action um, and to seek change through uh, friendship. And so the book is really uh, a call. It's a call to Christians to engage in deep friendship, in deep community, with people who don't look like them as a starting point for disrupting racism. I use that, uh, that modifier that, I don't know, I'm messing up my parts of speech, but at deep intentionally, right? Because I think it's important to say that like we didn't write a book calling people to go and have more coffee dates. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't write a book to call to get people to like just sort of hang out more. Well, we really wrote a book that that is calling people to engage with one another in a deep sense of community and friendship and relationship in a way that honors the name that that we like we say we're Christians, we're brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that honors that way of talking about each other, right? We talk about each other as family. That is how scripture teaches us to talk about our relationship with one another in familial terms. Mm-hmm. When you think about family, you think about kind of a mutual obligation, right? There's coffee, (laughs) there's fun, there's laughter, there's all that stuff, but there's some sacrifice. There's some sense of being obligated to one another in this back and forth way that is meaningful and that is rooted in in a a deep sense of love for each other. And, And so that's what the book's about, calling Christians into that kind of deep friendship and community that's characterized by a kind of mutual obligation, a sense that I am here for you, I am for you, and I'm willing to sacrifice for you. And that goes in both directions. And what a great framework for any friendship. I was just reading an article about how COVID has really done away with these, you know, the weak ties, the friendships that are your weak ties or your out of convenience or right. Mm -hmm. There's no casual friendships anymore. Yes, in some ways that's sad, but in many ways, this has forced us to really evaluate our friendships and the purpose behind them and to be that much more intentional with the way that we interact with people. But specifically, you know, to you and John's point in the book, specifically, whenever it is a friendship with someone of a different ethnicity, a different culture, someone who is different than you, but in the most beautiful ways, how would you define friendship of any kind? Like, what are some things for you that just constitute a good friendship in general? You know, I brought up the the sort of picture of the brother and sister in, in Christ. And and so thinking about this context, but but then of course sort of zooming out a bit, I'm reminded of my own sister, right? I, I have a sister, Alicia, that, that Jen mentioned. And as I think about my relationship with her, one of the things that characterizes our friendship is if someone were harming her, right? If someone were treating her unfairly, I would have some sense, some feeling that I've got to go do something about that. I need to walk alongside her as she navigates that. And so there's a sense of responsibility for one another that I think characterizes a deep friendship. I think the other thing that comes to mind is a kind of truth and an honesty and a willingness to be messy, <laughs> not <Yeah>. dramatic. <laughs> I'm not talking about drama, right? Yeah. Not, not that kind of messiness. I'm talking about just the willingness to be with the other person in the real stuff of their life and not to come too quick with the silver lining, right? Not to come too quick with the, well, at least, can we just get that whole phrase out of our vocabulary all together? Like, let's put it in the trash 
for 2021. No more, well, at least, right? But but more of a listening, a willingness to be with each other in our pain, in our anger, in our sorrow, in those emotions that are hard for us to feel ourselves sometimes and admit to. But can we wade into those things with each other? And those I think are true of any friendship and will serve a person particularly well when you're talking about friendship with someone whose life experience, race, ethnicity, et cetera, is different because there's more of a sense of, I'm not here to like convince you of anything. I'm not here to, um, change your mind about anything. I actually am just here to like be with you. I, I love that. And not when it's comfortable. Right. You bring that a lot up in the book of, you know, we have this tendency to really enjoy our comfort and do whatever possible to keep that comfort. And in general, we as Americans are very fragile. We as white people are very fragile. And something you said in the book, when you just mentioned something about, you know, sharing pain with one another, and you had said there is an insidious tendency in the American church to avoid expressing pain to God, to one another, and even to ourselves. That kind of gets to the heart of why we as a church are really struggling with this ability to sit with each other in pain, to be vulnerable with each other and have difficult conversations that absolutely need to happen. Absolutely. I I really couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the tendency when we encounter discomfort is to flee, right? It's like touching a hot stove. Oh my gosh, we got to get out of here. This hurts too much, right? But if we are going to, to sort of make a go at addressing the real problems that are plaguing our society, then we're going to have to sweat a little Mm -hmm. We might, we're going to have to be uncomfortable a little and, or a lot. And that is so, so important. So I'm so glad that you, that you highlighted that Lauren, I think that's hugely, hugely important. And I kind of hope my hope, I don't know if this is true, but my hope is that it's a muscle that we can work to build, you know, like the more we let ourselves be uncomfortable, the easier it is. And that, I don't know if that's true for everyone, because obviously an extrovert versus an introvert is a very different thing. And that's something you mentioned as well. But I I hope that that is a muscle that we can work to build and it just gets easier over time. I I think that's right. And I think the other thing is, even if it doesn't get easier as quickly as we would like, we can become more aware of it and choose to press in any way. We think, oh, bravery or courage is the absence of fear, but what if it's really moving forward even when we're afraid, even when we're uncomfortable? And so there's something in that, I think as well. So keep, you know, flexing that muscle, keep exercising that muscle, but be prepared for it not to like be ripped right away (laughs) Um, and and to keep going anyways. Speaking of things that make people uncomfortable, um, especially white people, let's be honest. There are terms that I think it would be good for us to define, for you to define before we move forward. We hear the terms racial reconciliation and racial justice. Mm -hmm. In 2020, we've heard them more than ever, but they are not new terms. And the need for them is nothing new. It's centuries and centuries old. Can you first kind of define what racial justice and racial reconciliation are, and then talk a little bit about how friendship can aid in both of those things? Yeah, one one way that we can think about racial justice is the experience of equity and, and fairness in every sphere of life, regardless of a person's race, right? Regardless of what they look like and regardless of where they've come from. If we were to think about that in biblical terms, it's ultimately an orientation that's centered on kingdom values where a person's wealth and gender and race and ethnicity do not determine their value. So while culture wants to rank human beings based on those factors, right? If we are to see as God sees, then that means that we will see the divine image in every person. And that basic theological truth then shifts and changes everything, you know, as we think about what justice is and, and, and what it looks like. 
racial reconciliation is sort of more like right relationship, right? Right relationship among people who are of different races or people who look different from each other. And what's always interested me about this conversation are the ways that sometimes these two things are set against one another and seen as opposing each other in some senses. Like we can, we can pursue either justice or reconciliation, you know, but, but not both. I think that's a false choice. I I agree that as black people, we do not have to wait for acceptance or to be reconciled relationally with white people in order to pursue racial justice in education, in housing, in wealth, in healthcare, in all the different areas, right? I agree with that. And yet, I think as we grow in relationship with people who look different from us, a shift can happen, right? In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul talks about what love looks like within a community when he says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So I think when that kind of spirit-filled empathy, right? That's rooted in the kind of deep friendship and community that we were talking about before. When that animates then our pursuit of God's justice in our communities, I I just think the sky's the limit there. So the possibility for change is then really robust and vibrant when we can sort of see these two things as complementary rather than opposed to each other. That's really, really good. You mentioned Paul, you mm-hmm. quoted some specific scriptures in there. And I'm I'm also wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, taking us to church a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the book, you say pursuing racial reconciliation becomes a priority. And I'm paraphrasing here, um, sure. not because a civil rights activist says so, not because a progressive says so, or because a celebrity tweets about racial issues, but reconciliation is a priority because Jesus says so. And you already touched on a few verses and a few references, but what does Jesus have to say about racial reconciliation? You know, it it is just so important to recognize that when we talk about the church or as Christians engaging in this work, that it is not because it's cool or because it's a fad or because it's some effort to be culturally relevant, but it is an, it is our an effort to be faithful. It is faithfulness. I'm reminded in the first chapter of the gospel of Mark and Jesus begins his public ministry by declaring that the kingdom of God has come near. He says, look, I have shown up and in my showing up, the kingdom of God has come near. My showing up means that I'm ushering in a whole new way of thinking and being. Because I've shown up, we, we aren't going to talk about how women are less than men. Jesus says, listen, you may think I'm going to go and like deal with the wealthy guy that showed up, but I need to attend to this woman right now. So we're going to stop like this, this rush to go off and, and, and do something else because this woman has come and she stands in need of something. And so we're going to pause. There are all these stories of the ways that Jesus turns on its head all the ways that culture thinks about power and worth and social status. And so when Jesus uh, in his coming, it was talking about like a radical reordering of our relationships, of our ways of thinking and our ways of being with one another. I also think about Um, the church in Ephesus as an example of a place where ethnic and religious differences cause division within the body of Christ, right? And so to be clear, race didn't function in the same way in this ancient context as it does now, right? Like they weren't ranking people based on the color of their skin, but group identity was really religious primarily, right? So it was the Jewish and Gentile divide that we read about so often in the New Testament. And that was really deeply rooted. And so in Ephesians 2, where Paul addresses these divisions by reminding the church that in Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike are then brought near to God, that they can come together to create this one new humanity. This is major, Because to think back to what we said at the beginning, Paul is not saying that, oh, in Christ, uh, Jews and Gentiles can have coffee together. 
That doesn't even make sense, right? Paul is saying that in Jesus, because of Jesus's work on the cross, because of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection and ascension, the longstanding religious and ethnic barriers that have separated Jews and Gentiles, those are eliminated, those are dismantled. And now we can, they can be one new family, one humanity that is still possible with us today. In Christ, because of the work of the, on the cross, Black people, white people, Asian people, Latino people, Latinx people, people of all different races and ethnicities can be one family, one new humanity. And that is, it just like blows my mind when I think about the power of Christ's work on the cross to be able to do that. And what if we lived like we believed that was true? Yeah. yeah. I believe in the South, the term is, That'll preach. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, so good. Thank you. That was so great. One of the things you said earlier was that you and John wanted to give each other a voice. And it's so clear. Your voice is so clear through this. And I love John's chapters too, but you really do such a great job in the book of breaking down what systemic racism is and the unfair advantage that white people receive from these structures of white supremacy, of white privilege. We look at the term, and Lauren, you can speak to this. You and I have talked about this a lot, that we know people, white men in particular, who look at the term white privilege as something that doesn't exist Mm -hmm. or something that is, you know, kind of dirty. Can you define that term as well and talk about how that often plays out in friendships, in workplaces, in society, and how we can, again, use that power of friendship to dismantle it and to create, you know, this oneness that we truly do have in Jesus? Yeah, I think one helpful way to think about what privilege is or what white privilege is, is that it's not that there's not difficulty in life, right? It doesn't mean there are not difficulties. It does not mean there are not challenges. But what it does mean is that those challenges will likely not stem from the fact that you are white. That's what it means. And so the idea that a person, that what a person has is not 100% the fruit of their own work, that can be jarring, right? I can understand that. And yet a conversation about racism in America, apart from a discussion about systemic racism, is just pretty useless. Mm-hmm. It, it just it, it really is not going to be productive or helpful because it's not rooted in reality, right? And I think there's this tendency then to sort of have this very limited and small view of racism as only or or mostly involving a person's individual conduct. We hear things like racism in the heart and not a racist bone in one's body and these sorts of phrases, right? We've all heard this stuff. And if a person were to ask you or someone else to describe a racist, like a lot of people might sort of conjure up the image of someone in the KKK or someone in the, uh, you know, a skinhead or something like that, right? But what ends up happening is this, when we have this really narrow view of racism that sort of doesn't make room for space for systemic racism, we end up with this really low bar for our conduct, right? Because what's our standard for ethics then? The standard for ethics is, well, as long as I don't, as long as I don't insert overt act of racism here, as long as I don't, you know, use the N word, as long as I don't, you know, X, Y, Z. And listen, if that is the standard for ethics, if that is a standard for our conduct, then isn't that just a, a, a perfect out, right? For mass, for, for large numbers of the white community to say, well, I'm not part of the problem. So I guess I can't be part of the solution. Hmm. And so that is sort of part of the uh, challenge or, or issue with that narrow definition of racism that doesn't make space for or recognize the impact of systemic racism. One, it's not rooted in reality. And two, it, it ends up being sort of a, a, a pass 
on engaging in the issue and really seeking to pursue uh, justice. Oh, that's so good. What are some of the, the ways that you have seen people in your own life or other examples of people working together using friendships, whether professional or personal friendships, to come against these systems and structures of white supremacy? You know, we're encouraging everyone this month to read your book and to also read Jamar Tisby's How to Fight Racism. He's starting a book club on February 1st around his new book. And he gives people really like tangible things that they can do to be better friends and allies to our Black brothers and sisters. But we are not naive enough to think that everyone listening to this podcast is going to read your book or Jamar's book. So what are some of the ways that we can use friendships, be better friends, be better allies to our Black brothers and sisters in order to dismantle our privilege and to fight against white supremacy? Yeah, I think a few things come to mind. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is to um, learn about our history. You know, I think there's so much importance in understanding what is our story as a nation. And we've all heard, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, that is just, there's so much truth in that as we think about the story of our, of our nation. And so I think that's a part of the sort of a baseline work is to have some understanding of, of our story as a country and, and how we've gotten to where we are right now. And then another thing that comes to mind is to begin to look at your own community, your own neighborhood, your own kids' school, housing in your community, healthcare in your community. What is going on there? You know, what is the story of that place and of those spaces? What inequities do you see in the places that you frequent? Maybe it's even your gym right? Because mm-hmm. eat or your grocery store. So what are the inequities that you see present and at work? And then who is already engaged? Who is already doing the work of addressing the issues that you see in your own community? And how can you partner with them? I think there can be so much pressure to, I don't know, come up with something to quote unquote do, Right. But there are already so many people already doing. And so what would it look like for you to come alongside them and support the longstanding work that is already going on? And then, I mean, I would be a terrible chaplain, pastor, everything. If I left this off the list, we've got to pray. Mm -hmm. We've got to pray. I think most people would agree that there's some human, that there is a human element, right? In the continued existence of racial injustice, Uh, that is undeniable, right? Mm -hmm. And yet we also have to recognize the powers and principalities that are work, that are operating behind that human element that are, that's holding racism in place in our country. And um, I think prayer has to be a continued and consistent part of the work of pursuing racial justice. I think that's so, so important. So those are just a few things that come to mind. Yeah, those are really great. And I know for us, you know, living where we do in a sorely lacking diversity here in our community, predominantly white neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. and there are really amazing people doing the work and we need to go seek those people and those places out. And we're not going to be able to build friendships that hold meaning that can have these difficult conversations and be a part of the change that is hopefully going to happen in years to come in our communities. If We don't go and try to be a part of those communities and stand side by side with the people that are doing that work. And yeah. I think that can be challenging for us here, but there are ways to do it. And we need to step outside our comfort zones is really what it comes down to. Yeah, absolutely. And what would it look like for the kind of deep um, friendship and community with others to animate the work that you're doing, right? So that that work is not coming out of any sort of a 
I don't know, like a white savior complex or anything of that nature, right? But that it really is animated by a deep sense of love and empathy. What would it look like to pursue justice from that standpoint, standing on that foundation? And that I think is what is key. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I don't know if John actually said this in the book, but I remember him saying this at your book launch party in Pasadena. He -hmm. said, I didn't care about black people until I cared about a black person. Mm -hmm. And that has always stuck out to me. And we, you know, like Lauren just said, because we do live in this predominantly white area, it's hard for some people in this area to even wrap their minds around what it would look like to work together from a place of friendship with someone, whether that is a black person or someone in the, we have a, we do have a large Hispanic, uh, Latino, Latinx community here. So they don't have any idea of what that would look like because they don't know, they aren't friends with anyone. It's not on their radar because they're not friends with anyone. And I think what better way to become friends with someone in an authentic way than to really stand together and rally around a a common cause for the good of all people in your community. Right. Yeah, I agree. That's very well said, Jen. Well, that's high praise from someone who has literally just said everything so beautifully in this interview. <laughs> Thank you very much, sister. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, you did say at the end of our last question, you said you think prayer is so, so important. And Lauren and I agree. And that is something that we try to do even as we're podcasting, just really mm-hmm. pray about each episode and the heart behind it. And we had an episode a couple of weeks ago about the church and Trump and the riots at the Capitol, mm-hmm. um, where we addressed some things that we think the church is getting wrong um, when it comes to politics and Christian nationalism. But as far as racial justice and, and racial reconciliation are concerned, what are some things that you see the church both getting right and getting wrong right now around those issues. Yeah, I think it's so important to even recognize the historical role in the church, of the church, excuse me, in the civil rights movement, right? The civil rights movement was born in and sustained by the church. Much of the abolition movement before it was sustained by Christians, right? Um, Here and in England. And so... In many ways, the church has been at the forefront of the fight for racial justice, you know, and some are even now today are engaging in important conversations and some are engaged in direct action. But what I see is that there are a lot of people, a lot of churches that are heading in the right direction on this issue. And but I think one of the most as I think about what the church is getting wrong, probably one of the more frustrating things is this idea that just talking about race is somehow divisive or that people who talk about race are divisive people. You know, if a couple, if a married couple was having problems in their marriage, right? If there had been some kind of betrayal within their relationship, what counselor is going to come and say, I know how you can fix that. You should neither, neither of you should ever talk about it again. (laughs) Makes sense. And yet that is the advice. That is the advice of much of the church. I know how we can fix the problem of race. We need to not talk about it. Well, that doesn't make any sense that I don't see exactly how that's going to fix um, anything. And I think it goes very back to what Lauren, I think, said so well earlier about the difficulty of being uncomfortable. And so there just needs to be some more flexing of that discomfort muscle, I think. Yeah, that's really good. Well, we do want to be sensitive to your time, to everyone's time. Tisha, is there anything else that you want to say in regards to the power of friendship to truly disrupt racism? Yeah. You know, you mentioned a minute ago, Jen, the, the, um, 
I don't know what we're calling it now. What, what is it? Are we calling this thing the Capitol insurrection, the one six riots? Yeah, I don't know. But that was, um, man, that was a low point. That was a low point. I think the image of the Confederate flag being paraded through our Capitol building was um, very challenging, very painful to even see that. That it, that is a thing that didn't even happen at the time of the civil war, right? Like that, that didn't even happen, happen then. And then, so for that to occur in the year 2021 was quite difficult to see. And so I think the, the piece that I continue to go back to the, the thing that, that keeps me going that I, that I think as we think about pursuing friendships and pursuing uh, justice is that we cannot grow weary, that as we do this work, as we do, as we pursue faithfulness, um, that we have to do so remembering that Christ has already overcome all evil on the cross and that there is no world in which racism will have the last word. And so that's the thing I say, not at all, um, not in a preachy way. It's very much me preaching to myself because I have to go back to that at times when we see things like the Confederate flag being paraded through our Capitol or like groups of white supremacists marching in Charlottesville or yet another cell phone video, I, I have to remember that Christ has already overcome. Christ has already overcome. Amen. Yeah. I just want to say thank you so much because I also want to recognize that this is emotional work for you mm-hmm. um, as a black woman to do this mm-hmm. for us. Mm-hmm. And I really, really, really want to encourage everyone listening to reach out to Tisha, to thank her for the work that she did here for us today, to also buy her and John's book. Tisha, where can they find your book? Everywhere books are sold, Jen. No, um, <laughs> was that good? <laughs> um, <laughs> perfect. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. Okay, perfect. Yeah, you can buy it on Amazon um, and yeah, literally wherever books are sold. <laughs> awesome. And that really is the best way to thank Tisha for her time here is mm-hmm. to support her work and to buy her book. And we're so grateful. I mean, I love you so much. I'm so thankful for you because- Having you in my life has been just a huge blessing in so many ways, but the way that you have really led our family um, Mm -hmm. and I've seen our family grow, including Fred and Cher, shout out to Fred and Cher. Yes. Uh, My parents, Tisha's in-laws, they have grown so much too um, because they know and love you. So thank you for your leadership and for your work. Absolutely. I love you too, Jen. And I'm just grateful for your friendship, for our friendship. Oh gosh, please don't cry, girl. Pull it together. <laughs> fine. It's fine. You guys got me <laughs> crying over here. So it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Feel free because I'm just a mess. It's also <laughs> very close to that time of the month. So I'm just <laughs> a little. Right. And Lauren and I spent enough time together sure that I think we're just safe. Well, I'm, I am grateful to both of you for having me on the podcast. I'm grateful to you both for elevating uh, this conversation and using your platforms to do that. It's so important. And I so appreciate the thoughtful uh, and honest conversation that we had. So grateful to you both uh, so much. Um, I'm rebooking a flight that I'm not going to take in February and I'm going to rebook it to New Orleans for, oh, like, perfect. you know, October. So I'll be calling you this week. To anyway, <laughs> love it. Okay. Thank Thank you, you. Tisha. Thank you both. What an amazing conversation that was. I feel so lucky that we were able to discuss things and have such an open and honest conversation and that we could share it with all of you. And we hope you all took something, lots of things away from that conversation. Yeah. I know I am somewhat biased because she is my (laughs) sister-in-law. But I do feel like every time I talk to Tisha and this interview was no exception, I learn something new or she challenges me to think differently and be a better person in some way. And that's really beautiful. It's really awesome to have in my very own family. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> don't be jealous, everyone. Yeah. It's okay. So what was something new that you gleaned from that conversation? Something that maybe struck you? Because these conversations can mean different things at different times. Uh, in the context of what's going on in our country, current events, 
what's going on in our personal lives. So what were some of the things that you are going to take away from it? Honestly, when she was talking about the riots at the Capitol, the insurrection at the Capitol, I knew that the Confederate flag had been waved there. I also saw a picture of a noose that someone Mm -hmm. put in front of the Capitol. Like I knew that there were a lot, the Proud Boys were there, so there were a lot of very racist things happening. Mm -hmm. Lots of symbols, yeah. But I kind of centered myself, unfortunately, on that day as I was processing everything and thought, gosh, I'm just so upset for our country and for how bad this looks for Christians. And it was really eye-opening to me. Like I said, I, I knew that there was a Confederate flag waved there. I knew that there were pictures of nooses, that the Proud Boys were there. But again, it was it's important for us as white people mm-hmm. to also decenter ourselves yes. in anything where race is a motivator or is involved and racism is involved. And I just felt like I had not done a good enough job of reaching out to my friends of color, to my black friends and saying like, hey, are you okay? Because while yes, there was a lot of political unrest There was also a lot of racism involved there, and I apologize to my um, friends of color and to some of my black friends specifically, and I probably need to have personal, private apologies as well, that I didn't reach out and say, hey, are you okay? I just Mm kind of centered myself there and how I was feeling. I think that's easy, unfortunately, for us to all do, is we find what's relatable for us and our own experiences, but I think the point of all of this And the point of these conversations is to realize we need to step outside of ourselves. And that is a privilege that we have, that we can focus on our own issues and our own feelings. And it's time for us to look at what other people are going through, especially for the black community right now and everything that's happening and stand up for it, apologize for it. Like you said, I think that's really good. I think for me, talking about friendships and the importance of what a friendship can do in disrupting racism was really important for me because I've been on this journey for not as long as I wish I had been on learning about the history, really learning from some of these really strong, amazing black voices that are coming out and speaking into all of this and so thankful for their time and energy that people are spending to educate us. This is not something they have the responsibility to do. No. And I am so, so grateful that we have people like Tisha that are speaking into this. So I think for me, I am getting to the place where I'm learning, I'm educating myself, I'm trying to figure out what do I do next to not only listen and educate myself, but what are the steps that I take to actually make action in being an ally to also being an activist, like, and not in the, like Tisha thankfully said, not in the white savior kind of way. What, what are the things that I can do? It's really good to read this book. Really important that we start here. It's a great book to give to friends, maybe that aren't really familiar with these conversations. It's a really good place for them to start, maybe. There's Mm -hmm. so much in there. It's so important. Yes. I think for us in a area that is mostly affluent white people, we do wish there was more diversity. And it's not enough for us to wish that there's more diversity because it's there if we can find it. And we need to be cultivating those relationships and seeking them out. And I think you and I had a really honest and good conversation about this. Is it okay to seek out friends of color, like seek out people of color to be friends with genuinely, authentically, of course, with the right intention to be friends? But is that an okay thing to do without feeling like we're maybe tokenizing? I think you have to be aware of the intention Mm -hmm. behind why you're cultivating the friendship. Mm -hmm. Is it because you truly want a relationship with this person? Or is it because you really want them to educate you on things that you don't know about and you want to be able to say, I have a black friend or I have an Asian friend or Mm -hmm. I have a Latinx friend. If in fact the intention behind the relationship is authentic, it's someone who you truly think you would click with, I think that's really important to point out. You are not, just like I'm not gonna click with every white person that I meet, I am not gonna click with 
every Asian, every black, every Latinx person that I meet, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't have to be friends with every single person that we meet. You can, you know, be more of an acquaintance or whatever, but if there is someone of a different race, a different ethnicity, who you know you would click with and you are authentically trying to pursue a relationship with them, then yes, I think that that is, it is totally fine to go into the relationship knowing that you would be good friends and also wanting to be friends with someone who is not just going to share your white worldview. Yeah, challenge each other in some way, be able to have honest conversations that will help us navigate the world and all the complex nuanced issues that we're dealing with. I think, you know, we go into a room, say, and we automatically feel uncomfortable, say we're there by ourselves. I've, you know, this has happened for us at different events or, you know, church gatherings. So you walk into the room and I feel like we almost have this like herd mentality where without even thinking about it, I don't even think it's subconscious. It's just like for whatever reason in our brains, we flock to the people who look like us, people who maybe share the same fashion choices or like are our same age, automatically go towards these people. So I think with knowing that the idea of just being intentional to look around the room and just start conversations with different people that seem different from you. And I think so many beautiful and amazing and honest conversations can come out of those friendships because you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone of people who just look and sound like you. Yes. And for those of us who don't live in areas that are incredibly diverse, you know, I think Tisha brought up a good point and we're going to talk more about that in a minute about the importance of going to places, whether that is a city council meeting or whether that is, you know, a nonprofit group who's working on issues of racial justice and becoming friends and really locking arms with people Mm -hmm. around a central focus and mission. That is one way to build authentic friendship likely with people who are different than you. But one thing that I've tried to do, and again, I am not patting myself on the back here or saying that I am the expert at this. When I used to, you know, in a pre-COVID world, go to conferences, (laughs) I would try at the, you know, the conference after party or the VIP party or whatever to seek out the Asian women, the black women, the Latin women in the, the room and strike up a conversation with them. And at one conference that I was at, I ended up spending, you know, two hours sitting and talking with one of the black women at the conference. And she and I got to be friends. And then from being friends with her, I've become friends with other amazing black women. So you just never know how one conversation, it's the same thing with networking with anyone. Mm -hmm. You know, one conversation can lead to other conversations, can lead to other friendships. Just don't be afraid to start the conversation. Yeah. And then I think the other thing that uh, Tisha actually mentioned in the book was, so if you do have a diverse friend group and you have black friends, she says, the thought of, quote unquote, I have black friends can sometimes obscure the fact that they are holding themselves apart from the hard work of understanding my being Tisha's experience and the role racism plays in our culture. And I think that's the second part to that is that when you do have a diverse group of friends, just because you do have cultivated relationships with black people, that does not mean that you should not also be doing the work to educate yourself, to learn more, and also to advocate for them apart from your, even just within your friendship. Tisha said it in the interview, she said it in the book, you becoming friends with a black person is not you working to disrupt racism. Mm -hmm. And I'll speak to my own experience here. My best friend from college is Jamaican and she and I lived together for a whole year in college. And it never once occurred to me that her experience of the world as a black woman was different than mine. And I never once asked her during that whole year that we lived together, how she viewed the world, what her upbringing was like. I feel I've apologized to her before. It wasn't until 2016, she lives in Dallas, Texas, and when the Dallas police shootings happened as a response to the murders of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, I called her because there was, um, you know, protesting and, and rioting in Dallas, and I called her and I was like, hey, are you okay? And I I just said, I was like, Katie, and I'm so sorry. I never asked. 
I, it never occurred to me how different your life is than mine, and I'm so sorry. So I think Tisha's quote about, you know, just assuming that you have a black friend and not really seeking to understand their experience, that rings true for me. So I do have a question, and I think probably many people who are listening have the same question. What do we do now? Absolutely. I listened to Annie Downs' podcast this week with Jamar Tisby, who we mentioned earlier. Jamar just wrote a book called How to Fight Racism, and we're encouraging everyone to read Tisha's book and also Jamar's book this month. He is holding a book club starting February 1st, so it started yesterday. You buy the book, you request access to this private Facebook group, and he's doing a book club this month. One of the things that he said in the podcast, though, I think is a really good place for us to end here. He suggested holding three 30-minute meetings with yourself. And these are things that all of us can start doing right now. The first meeting is where you write sort of your um, anti-racism manifesto. What do you want your life to say about racial reconciliation and racial justice? What, you know, is important to you what do you want to be known for mm-hmm. at the end of your life? Yeah. And then that second meeting that you have with yourself is what issues and organizations do you see yourself getting involved with and where in your area can you get involved in those issues? And that's, Tisha referenced that. Mm-hmm. And that third 30-minute meeting is the actually getting involved, the actual volunteering. So I would really encourage all of us to continue listening to continue learning, to continue doing the work in our own personal hearts and minds, but also to actually get out there and start locking arms with our friends of color and doing the work with them. I completely agree. And I think as we have these important conversations this month, we want you guys to very much be a part of the conversation. We're going to be discussing race. We're going to be discussing relationships in all forms. If you have questions or thoughts or things that you want to hear us talk about, please let us know. You guys can find us on Instagram at The Morning Range. You can always reach out to us through our website. We have an email address and We want to have you guys very much involved in this conversation and things that we will share with one another in this next month, I think are going to be really important to how we view the world this year and how we go about our own personal relationships is going to be the heart and soul of that. Yeah. As always, thank you guys so much for listening. It means the world to us that you are here. We hope that you will subscribe, that you will rate and review. Yes, it's so helpful. It means so much to us. We get like really giddy every time we get a new rating or review. And we love to just hear from you guys to hear that you're listening. So it's very exciting for us. And I can't imagine anyone giving a bad review to this episode. (gasps) Absolutely. Thanks again. Life's too short to stay silent, Lauren. Thank you guys for raging with us today.